When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of presidential campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Our Whistle Stop today is July 13th, 1972, and we're in the executive conference room at the Doral Hotel in Miami, Florida. The McGovern for President Brain Trust is holding the first of its meetings to narrow the decisions to find a vice presidential running mate for George McGovern. The night before, delegates to the convention had put McGovern over the top. It was the culmination of an underdog campaign against the Democratic establishment and a more recent convention fight challenging the winner-take-all rules that had given McGovern the California delegates. The 12th of July had been a late-night chaotic affair, so on the 13th, everyone in the conference room was a little bit punchy. The floor was thrown open to suggestions for running mates. Hey, and there were a lot of jokes. You know, it may be Bullwinkle. They didn't actually suggest Bullwinkle, but it was that kind of atmosphere. But there was also a theory behind it, which was this is a new kind of campaign, so maybe we should have some, like, civilians, not just other, other politicians. And so someone even suggested CBS newsman Walter Cronkite. Gary Hart, McGovern's campaign manager, who would later be a senator and run for president himself, wrote in his account of the campaign, the mood was light, relaxed to the point of frivolity. Victory was being savored for the first time in the light of day. It was like a group of fraternity boys who had spent most of the night successfully stealing the rival school's mascot. Finally, they had to get serious. Frank Mankiewicz, one of the other senior leaders of the campaign, called the room to order by ringing a glass with his silverware. We have three hours to choose the deputy commander of the free world, he said. A decision had to be made by the end of the day because McGovern would announce it that night at the convention. So the list was whittled down some as staffers weighed ideological and geographical benefits of the various people on the list. The list was created, but there was really one name at the top of the list. So if it's in font, this one was in 36-point type and the other names were in six. And that name was Ted Kennedy. The fixation about having Kennedy as the running bait was described by Frank Mankiewicz. He said, the only question on the staff about Teddy was how many fingers they'd be willing to lose to have him. So after McGovern won, there was another huge burst of this Kennedy love. McGovern himself thought, hey, I know he said no before, but if I call him and show him I've won the nomination, uh, maybe he'll reconsider. So he placed a call and Kennedy still said no. And a bunch of other senators made it clear they didn't want to run either. Humphrey, Mondale, Muskie. It may have been that Nixon seemed unbeatable in the general election. It may also have seemed that McGovern was just too far out there. But now there's, it's a problem. It's late afternoon and McGovern's been calling around to these senators and party leaders and he doesn't have a running mate. And the process is totally falling out of shape. Hart said he had vowed to make the process work in a way that it wasn't rushed because he remembers what happened with Kennedy's selection of LBJ. And now he was watching it happen again. Hart wrote, what had started as a happy day putting frosting on the cake was disintegrating into a nightmare. Finally, McGovern decided. 
I think I'll go with Tom, he said. He meant Tom Eagleton, the 42-year-old senator from Missouri. McGovern, who had also pledged to avoid the messy way vice presidents had been picked in the past, chose Eagleton after considering him for less than an hour. And in the conversation in which he offered him the job, that conversation lasted 67 seconds, according to Lawrence Altman of The New York Times. It was either a sign of the desperate situation McGovern was in, had to get a pick, had nobody on the list, ran out of options, or his hubris about his gut instincts as a campaigner. McGovern placed the call to Eagleton. Eagleton accepted with glee. And as he did so, a plunger dropped on the timer of a bomb that was destined to destroy the McGovern campaign. Today, it would be unheard of for a campaign to pick a vice presidential candidate like this. Now, campaigns spend weeks and weeks looking through every Facebook posting and checking a potential running mate's video rental records to make sure they've returned all the video cassettes fully rewound. It's in part because of Tom Eagleton, or the Eagleton Affair, as it was uh, splashed across the cover of Time magazine at the time. Not long after this hectic selection process uh, at the Doral Hotel, it would come to be known that Eagleton had been treated several times for nervous exhaustion and had gotten electric shock treatments as a part of that treatment. A frantic 18 days ensued after Eagleton's selection, which is why one of the great books on this episode is called The 18-Day Running Mate by Joshua Glasser. McGovern stood behind Eagleton, but then... The damage became too severe, and he was removed from the ticket, making McGovern look incompetent to some and cold-hearted to others. The fiasco mortally wounded the campaign, and if you really want to lean into it, and here I'm basically taking an argument out of or maybe abusing an argument written in a book called The Liberals' Moment by Bruce Miroff. If you really want to lean into this, the disaster of Eagleton ends up being a disaster for the liberal cause because the ideas that had been at the heart of the McGovern campaign were tarnished by the collapse of the McGovern candidacy and therefore liberals were had a tougher time in the future bringing up their ideas and putting them at the heart of a presidential campaign. But let's step back and talk about how this all happened. McGovern was a liberal insurgent. He surprised the Democratic Party, winning the nomination through a coalition of younger voters and minorities. In 1972, uh, as we remember from the Muskie whistle stop, this was the first election that 18 to 21-year-olds could vote after the 26th Amendment was passed to the Constitution. That meant 25 million first-time voters. That was the idea of the McGovern campaign, that it was going to harness all these new voters and this was going to be a chance for the liberal experiment to actually be tested and tried. So while a lot of strategists said McGovern never had a shot, all these millions of new voters offered a a possibility that there might be a silent liberal majority out there that he had tapped into. But on the downside, this silent liberal majority was being used by conservatives, even within the Democratic Party, to argue basically that McGovern was way too far to the left. And that centered around a couple of issues. The first issue was that McGovern wanted to legalize pot. He didn't. He just wanted to uh, decriminalize it. Uh, He said that he favored abortion on demand. He didn't. He just believed that it should be up to the states to decide that. And an amusing sign of the tension within the Democratic Party was when McGovern was campaigning for them in the Nebraska primary, he asked Governor Frank Morrison to help him set the record straight on these two issues. So introducing McGovern... Morrison said, we have in our state tonight one of the finest young men in America. He is a great patriot, a highly decorated war hero who loves his country and wants to serve us as president. But he has been subjected to a vicious campaign of smears and innuendo. 
They say George McGovern is for the legalization of marijuana, but I say, and at that point, the audience of younger voters started cheering for the legalization of marijuana. And so that interrupted um, the poor governor. And then he continued on. He said that that uh, George McGovern does not advocate for the legalization of marijuana, which then produced booze in the audience. He then tried again. They say George McGovern is for abortion on demand, but I tell you again, huge applause for abortion on demand. Then he pointed out that was not his position. The crowd didn't like it. This all came to a head in a newspaper article written by the columnist Robert Novak. Novak after it looked like McGovern was going to win these primaries, called around to some Democratic senators to ask about McGovern. And he quoted one of them as saying, quote, the people don't know McGovern is for amnesty, abortion and legalization of pot. Once middle America, Catholic middle America in particular, finds this out, he's dead. Because of the column, McGovern became known as the candidate of amnesty, abortion and acid. It would be almost impossible for him to shake that pithy label. For those of you who have the commemorative whistle-stop workbook, please write down that alliterative phrase. We're going to come back to it later at the end. So McGovern needed a candidate to help him balance out the Democratic coalition. He had the hippies and the women's libbers, but he needed the Catholics and the union workers. And that's where Tom Eagleton came in. He was a Catholic. He had sort of movie star good looks, and he was also tight with the unions. It's also worth noting, as our Cracker Jack researcher Brian has pointed out to me, that Eagleton was actually pro-life. That was not the issue in democratic politics that it is today. A pro-life candidate can hardly even get time on the convention stage, let alone be picked to run on a democratic ticket these days. So Eagleton is picked after that short phone call, and this is the extent of the vetting that went into him after he was picked. Gary Hart and Frank Mankiewicz asked the Eagleton's political handlers, if there'd been any problem in his background, there were some rumors that he drank a little too much, that he might have had a mental issue somewhere. But Eagleton's administrative assistant said that he checked himself into the hospital once for exhaustion, but that was it. No big deal. Just the kind of rumors, you know, that go around in the press. Magowitz and Hart and the rest of the whole McGovern campaign were just totally exhausted from the fight. And as Magowitz said, it was a very hectic time. I must have had not two things on my mind, but maybe 80. So they took this uh, explanation of Eagleton's past and they were like, oh, OK, that's fine. Had no problem with him. And they moved on and went off on vacation after the convention because they needed to uh, finally relax after this long slog. Not long after Eagleton was picked, a 28-year-old reporter was given the assignment to go write a profile about him. His name was Clark Hoyt, and he was uh, working for the night newspapers. He flew to St. Louis and did what journalists did in the pre-digital age. He asked the St. Louis Post-Dispatch if he could have access to their newspaper clip files on Eagleton. I talked to Hoyt, who is a friend who now works at Bloomberg. He said they brought in these massive files full of old clippings. And as he started to read through them, he noticed there were huge gaps in the Eagleton coverage. He'd been in the news a lot as attorney general, as lieutenant governor, but at various periods, it would go from being consistent coverage to then just sort of these dark periods. So he was wondering about those dark periods. And simultaneously, a colleague at the Detroit Free Press received, uh, which was also within the same newspaper chain, received an anonymous call from someone claiming to be a McGovern supporter who said Eagleton had a history of mental illness, and he was sure that Nixon was going to spring that dirty trick late in the campaign. 
person gave uh, the name of a doctor who would have firsthand knowledge of the treatments that Eagleton had been under. And these shock treatments, electroshock treatments, basically it's a regimen in which seizures are electrically induced in patients to uh, provide relief from uh, psychiatric illness. So Hoyt went and took the name of the doctor and went and knocked on the doctor's door. She answered, and he said, I'm Clark Hoyt of the night newspapers. And did you treat Senator Eagleton at a psychiatric hospital where he was admitted uh, with electroshock therapy for depression? Clark said that the doctor's face just totally drained of all of its color. She slammed the door and said, "Uh, I can't talk to you about that. He, of course, knew without a doubt then that the story was true, but he couldn't exactly publish that. So he went back to his research. Simultaneously, the McGovern headquarters are increasingly getting alarmed. After the convention, they're all on vacation. The top staff went to the Virgin Islands. McGovern went into the Black Hills. And they started to hear vague stories about reporters who were nosing around in the story. What they didn't know is how far the noses had gotten. Were they just getting little whiffs of these rumors or did they have a full snootful? So they didn't know yet what Hoyt was up to. But then the the campaign got its own anonymous phone call basically from the same person saying – explaining about the the extent of Eagleton's visits to psychiatric institutions and also about this electric shock therapy. At this point, Mankiewicz and Hart call Eagleton. They recognize that he'd not been straight with the campaign uh, and and said they needed a meeting to, uh, to sit down with him and get the straight story out of Eagleton. In that meeting, Eagleton finally admitted that he'd been to the hospital three times. Mankiewicz asked him what he'd been uh, been diagnosed with, and Eagleton said melancholia, to which Mankiewicz uh, incredulously responded, there's no such disease. Maybe there was 100 years ago. Finally, Eagleton also admitted that he'd undergone electroshock therapy, although he would insist that he was fine. This was all in the past and that he'd kind of licked these psychiatric issues. What would later come out is that um, in the late 70s, he would receive a diagnosis of bipolar 2 disorder from... Frederick Goodwin, who was a psychiatrist who would later go on to head the National Institute of Mental Health. So it was obviously a serious case indeed. At this point, Clark Hoyt and the McGovern campaign know the same thing. They just don't know each other knows it. So the McGovern aides fly up to South Dakota, put the problem before their boss. On the one hand, no candidate had been cut from a ticket that fast. On the other hand, Nixon, who was running as a strong leader in world affairs, would certainly make something of the fact that there was a ticket on the Democratic side where the nation's welfare was being risked by having an unstable vice president one heartbeat away from being leader of the free world. And there was another problem for the McGovern campaign, which was even though it was understandable that Eagleton would not boast about this, the fact that he had kept it so close to the vest that he'd been dribbling out the story to the McGovern folks with misdirection and hiding, uh, it suggested and, – and he had a record of this. There were – his brother who was a doctor uh, and his staffers had been asked at various times in his career about any of the smallest details associated with these disappearances and they basically always told a false story. So the McGovern people didn't know what other shoe might drop. Meanwhile, Clark Hoyt and his colleague Robert Boyd kept their reporting up and decided they had to go to the McGovern campaign. It's funny, in retrospect, we should stop here. In today's press environment, if you had this story, people would just run with it. I mean, it would have been on Twitter, you know, when the first rumors started. But Hoyt and Boyd wanted to take all the reporting they'd done and present it to the McGovern campaign because they wanted to be able to present the story in context, get answers from Eagleton, be able to present people with a full and not sensationalist picture. 
So they take it to the McGovern folks. And uh, they were uh, – Frank Mankiewicz looked at all the material and said, OK, well, um, we promise you we'll get you all the answers you want. We'll get you the medical records and you'll be able to review it all with Eagleton. Meanwhile, on a separate track, Eagleton is now trying to save his bacon and keep his place on the ticket. So he's flying to South Dakota to talk with McGovern. So the whole McGovern team met in a log cabin while reporters Hoyt and Boyd were standing outside waiting. And every once in a while, remembers Hoyt, the the staffers from the McGovern campaign would kind of pull back the curtain and see if if the two reporters were still out there. Finally, the curtain parted. The reporters were... um, told, sorry, fellas, you may be from a previous era where you tried to get the story right and you presented it all to us, but we're going to screw you and announce all this at a press conference where we can keep control of the story better. So their exclusive, which was the product of all that reporting and all that time spent with the clip files in the St. Louis Dispatch library room, was now going to be blown by the campaign, which had, you know, which wanted to do it in a press conference so that it could get the story out in one burst, have more control of it. At this point, Whistle Stop listeners, please turn to the Gary Hart tab in your Whistle Stop fanboy tablet and write a little note to yourself about this episode with the press. We'll come back to that later as we tell the story of Hart's relationship with Donna Rice that torpedoed his presidential campaign. Now back to the Eagleton affair. So they're going to have a press conference. And at the press conference, the news was announced that Eagleton had uh, gone into psychiatric institutions, uh, but he was still pretty coy about it. They had to pull the electroshock therapy piece from him in questioning. But then McGovern stood by his man. McGovern said, as far as I'm concerned, there is no member of the Senate who is any sounder in mind, body and spirit than Tom Eagleton. I am fully satisfied. And if I had known every detail that he told me this morning which is exactly what he has just told you here now, he would still have been my choice for the vice presidency of the United States. So that was full support from McGovern. It was motivated by a couple of factors. The first was that McGovern was following his own instincts. He thought he knew best how to run his campaign, and and this had actually been an ongoing problem for the campaign, uh, about which the press secretary actually wrote Uh, McGovern a memo in in which he wrote, no major presidential candidate in modern history has successfully pulled off being both the jockey and the horse, both the candidate and the man who is also really running the campaign. So this was another instance in which McGovern thought, we'll have this press conference, I'll make a big, bold statement, and then we'll just move on. And um, there will be no dead man walking storyline because people will learn the news about his electroshock therapy and see me standing up right next to him. Um, And we will put forward a united front of of bravely confronting uh, this issue and and looking tough moving on. The other factor, which we would all learn later, was that, and McGovern writes about this in his memoirs, was that his daughter was also suffering from depression. So if he had abandoned his running mate, it would have been like abandoning his daughter. After the press conference, Hoyt and his colleague Boyd were given a bit of a booby prize. They'd lost their exclusive, but they got the first interview with Eagleton on his way to the airport. Immediately, Eagleton wanted to get back on the campaign trail to show that he was fit, he was fighting, he was out there, and if he could be a vigorous campaigner, he'd be just fine as a vice president. Hoyt and Boyd started asking questions of Eagleton, and Hoyt just remembers in his conversation with me that he answered everything. But, Hoyt said, he was chain-smoking Pall Malls the whole way. He smoked half a cigarette, and then he'd light the new one off the old one and throw it out the window. He was also sweating profusely. He was sweating so profusely, remembers Hoyt, that he soaked through his sports jacket. And I realized when I got to the airport, I was soaking through also because of him. 
I folded up my notebook and said, that's all I have. He slumped over in his seat and said, thank God. Well, the story didn't go away. Eagleton was confronted with it at every campaign stop. And on July 27th, and remember, our story began on July 13th, with criticism mounting over McGovern's selection, McGovern started dialing around to psychiatric experts, and one of them was Dr. Carl Menninger. McGovern asked the psychiatrist what he would do if he were McGovern, and Menninger replied, you have to ask him to step down. But while McGovern was getting that counsel in one ear, he was doing things to box himself in on, on another front, which is there was a story that was going around from the AP that McGovern was actually thinking about dropping Eagleton, and to knock that down... McGovern put out the word that he was supporting Eagleton 1,000%, a phrase that would come back again and again and again. So what McGovern started doing was basically just hoping that Eagleton, seeing all of this kerfuffle that had been created in the press after the press conference, and by the way, Clark Hoyt and Robert Boyd ended up writing a story that incorporated all of their original reporting. So that story, which would later go on to win the Pulitzer Prize, was also making a big splash. And what McGovern hoped is that Eagleton, who had said when he was selected, look, if I ever become a problem to the ticket, I'll pull myself off. McGovern was basically trying to send him the the memo with the subject line, you are a problem for the ticket, please go away. Eagleton was having exactly the wrong reaction though. Eagleton was feeling like he had to fight this out because it was good for the ticket to see that he was a fighter. And so he told reporters in San Francisco, the way this has turned out, I'm a distinct plus to the ticket. I'm going to stay on the ticket. That's my firm, irrevocable intent. So Eagleton wasn't going to take him off the ticket. He and McGovern met and Eagleton said to him, sure, I'll cost you some votes amongst the worry warts, but I'll get you more votes among those who respect a fighter. He told McGovern that he was fighting for his political life. Well, it didn't sway McGovern. And they agreed on the 31st of July, 18 days after Eagleton had been selected, that he should leave the ticket. But there was some very careful stage managing that needed to happen. Basically, the two agreed, according to Miroff's account, that Eagleton would get off the ticket, but that it would be agreed by the both of them, the two of them, that it was not his mental capacity that made him unfit for the job. It's just the kerfuffle that had uh, exploded around it that made it just too politically difficult for him to stay on the ticket. And again, according to Miroff, Eagleton basically threatened McGovern and said, if you or any of your aides say I was kicked off the ticket because of my mental issues, I will fight you. I won't get off the ticket and I'll fight you all the way to, till November. Eagleton, who had acted in bad faith with McGovern and his forces, not really telling them the truth, and when he did, telling it slowly so that this became a many, many day story, nevertheless, in the public eye, looked like the wronged victim. He wrote a three-page essay in Newsweek, he got a page in Time magazine, and he appeared on CBS News the day after he left the ticket to essentially say what he had said before, which was that, no, he was a plus for the ticket and he shouldn't have been dropped. He became basically popular and perhaps, according to uh, McGovern's pollster, the most popular politician in America because they basically thought he had gotten a raw deal. McGovern couldn't explain everything that had happened behind the scenes. So let's just tote up the damage this does to the McGovern image. Before all of this happened, McGovern was a political ace who had run this amazing 
insurgent candidacy. Now he was basically seen as a guy, as a bungler, a guy who'd blown his first big presidential choice. He was at one point seen as a clean, highly moral character. Now he was seen as a kind of Nixon-like fellow who dropped his running mate because for politically opportune reasons. And by the way, mean guy to boot. As Bruce Miroff writes, this produced a disastrous new image for McGovern, both cold-blooded opportunist and hapless bungler. Here is a news report from the time that showed just how McGovern was getting pinched from both sides. State Democratic Chairman Delton Houchins was annoyed that Eagleton had not been given time to prove himself. Senator McGovern was not strong in Missouri to begin with, and I think this quick brush-off of Senator Eagleton uh, will prevent him from carrying this state definitely in the fall. I've been a lifelong Democrat, and I'm going to continue to be, but this fall election will find me and my friends spending our money and working to elect our state, congressional, and local tickets. Outside McGovern headquarters in St. Louis, the Eagleton signs had been removed. Only one, the special effort of a campaign worker, waited for her to claim it. Inside, disappointment with McGovern for Eagleton. Debbie Barber had seconded Eagleton's nomination at the convention. I am concerned with, with the youth, uh, particular so because I feel a lot of young people felt that McGovern was so idealistic, high morale character, and, and this, what he did decide to do, shows him as a practical politician, and I hope that doesn't discourage a lot of young people who we really need to count on to push McGovern through. From then on, McGovern was seen through the lens of this hapless loser. And if you look at the ripples, he was probably never going to win in 1972, but the Eagleton affair, had it not happened... McGovern might have won a few states and not lost as badly as he did. That might have set up a possible bid for him in 1976. But he was beaten so badly that that could never happen. There was also that problem for liberalism. Though Eagleton had nothing to do with the ideology. In fact, he was more to the right than the liberals in the party. The defeat of McGovern that was so big, aided in part by this catastrophe with Eagleton made him sort of the left's Goldwater, the candidate who most embodied the views of the ideological purists, but who could never win in a general election. And so that put a kind of a stink on those ideological views. And so liberals were wounded and Democrats came to believe that they had to move to the middle because of the proof of what had happened in the McGovern campaign. But if Eagleton had really torpedoed the McGovern campaign, then it wasn't the liberal ideas that were at the center of the campaign. It was that bungling or mishandling of the vice presidential choice. But that doesn't matter. The problem with McGovern would haunt liberals uh, for generations. After Eagleton, campaigns started pulling out the microscope to vet their vice presidential choices. Now, it's done now at the cellular level and months and months before the name is ever announced. Now, that doesn't stop questionable choices like John McCain's pick of Sarah Palin because campaigns have all this electoral pressure to help the larger ticket, which has nothing really to do with competence for the job. It has to do with constituencies and creating a sense of excitement. And so that's still built in. But uh, it's unlikely that something like this hidden in a candidate's past would be a total shock to the campaign. There are two other codas to this story. The first is that as reporters for the Miami Herald were pursuing a series of stories about presidential candidate Gary Hart's womanizing, they had the story of Clark Hoyt in their mind. They worried that 
if if they gave Hart too much time to respond to the reporting they had about Donna Rice and other women that he had been with, uh, and also, by the way, in 1984, those reporters were tipped off also by an anonymous phone call. But they worried that if they went to Hart and said, please help us put this into context, that the former McGovern campaign manager would do to them what he had done to Clark Hoyt, which is steal the scoop and put the story out in his own more favorable terms. And so uh, that pressured them in the putting out of that Hart story. We'll do, talk about that more later. The other coda is in 2007 – after Tom Eagleton's death, Robert Novak revealed the source of the quote during the Democratic primary that led to the abortion amnesty and acid line that had been used against McGovern. Eagleton was the Democrat who had said that. Now, just to keep your timeline straight, he said that when McGovern was in the primaries. Eagleton had no idea in the world that he would ever become the guy's running mate. Bob Shrum, the Democratic strategist who worked for McGovern, upon hearing Novak say that about Eagleton, said, boy, do I wish Eagleton would have let you publish his name. Then he would never have been picked as vice president because those two things, the two things that happened to George McGovern were the label that was put on him and the Eagleton disaster. We had a messy convention, but I think in the end could have carried eight to ten states, remained politically viable. But Eagleton was one of the great train wrecks of all time. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com. Or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word, makes us feel good about ourselves. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Our producer is Joel Meyer. He's also our managing producer. So he's the rare producer managing producer this week. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who never smoked Paul Mall cigarettes. He's a Chesterfield man. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On this week's We the People constitutional podcast, I'm joined by Richard Pildes from the New York University School of Law and Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz from the Georgetown University Law Center. We'll discuss the week's big cases at the Supreme Court involving threats on Facebook and alleged religious discrimination at Abercrombie & Fitch, We'll also discuss the upcoming cases the Supreme Court is about to decide in this blockbuster month of June, including a privacy case involving hotels and a big decision on the horizon about redistricting in Arizona. All this and more on this week's We the People Constitutional Podcast.